Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, where today's health leaders help to forge the leaders of tomorrow. I'm your host, Mark Bonica, of the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Our website is healthleaderforge.org, where you can find information about subscribing to the podcast, links and information related to the episode, as well as our complete archives. Today's guest is John Fernandez, the president and CEO of the Massachusetts Eye and Ear Infirmary in Boston, Massachusetts. Mass Eye and Ear is one of the world's leading specialty hospitals dedicated to ophthalmology and otolaryngology care, or as John says, they take care of everything from the neck up except the brain, but maybe the brain too sometimes. In this podcast, John talks about his journey to leading this world-class organization, including his progress into the executive ranks at another world-class Boston organization, the Brigham and Women's Hospital. Throughout the interview, John talks about his management approach, which focuses on the fundamentals, plan, execute, and follow up. While this sounds like a fairly simple formula, I think anyone who has tried it knows that simple isn't always easy. John tempers his management approach with a focus on kindness, which was something heartening to hear from a senior executive. One of the things that is clearly important to John is work-life balance. We talked about work-life balance both before and during the interview, and one of the pieces of advice he gives to early careerists is to get your personal life sorted out first, and then figure out what you want from work, which I thought was interesting advice. John has a series of questions that he gives people to help guide them through that process. I will post a link to those questions on the podcast webpage. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Don't forget to leave us feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you may be accessing this recording. Also, I'm excited to announce that we are now getting the podcast transcribed thanks to a financial gift from the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Thanks for listening. And here is John Fernandez. Welcome to The Forge, John. Glad to be here. So you went to the College of Worcester in Worcester, Ohio, and studied political science. What drew you to Worcester, and why political science? Two things to Worcester. One was independent study. It's one of the only colleges that requires a thesis done in your senior year. And so that was different than most colleges and universities I looked at. And number two, important in an 18-year-old's mind, was baseball. Okay. I'd say the third one was, it struck me, especially when I went to Ohio, but in specific Worcester, when you walk down the pathways and people would say hello. And I grew up in the inner city of Philadelphia, and when somebody said hello, you worried about them robbing you. Um, (laughs) So it was such a different place for me, and also to be able to play baseball. That actually ended about a year and a half into college. I got injured. So you were a college baseball player? Yes. but at least at the beginning. At the beginning, <laughs> I, I moved to softball after I had several injuries, huh. um, unfortunately, but and decided that pro baseball was not in my future. Okay. So okay. I probably knew that when I went to college. But it was independent study baseball and a different environment. Okay. Um, and what drew you to political science? So I thought about that when you gave me the questions. And political science, for me, I think was the place at Worcester, because it's a small liberal arts school, okay. where I could sort of mix my interest in business and politics. And there was no business school, there were no 
could have guessed I could have been an econ major, but didn't really know know what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say it was largely I fell into it. And my parents were very politically active when I was, when, even to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a part of me that really liked politics, but there was another part of me that was interested in business and how money moved and finance. So I thought uh, with the professors there, and I, lastly, there was a p- professor, Mark Weaver, that taught political theory, which could be the most deadly, boring class known to man, but he made it interesting. And that that's one of the things that really attracted me was the, okay. the faculty. And I'm not just saying that because you're a faculty member. <laughs> well, we like to, we like to work, work hard to, to make our stuff interesting. Okay, great. So you graduated and your first job, it looks like, brought you to Cambridge. So I was wondering if you were from the Boston area originally, but you said you're from Philadelphia. Nope. What brought you to Cambridge? So it was actually sort of simple. It was uh, at the time I was dating a young woman and she was from West Hartford. I was from Philadelphia and neither of us wanted to move to New York. Okay. And I wanted to try something different than Philadelphia. So that's sort of, and we wanted to move to the East Coast. Okay. So we chose, it was either Washington, D.C. or Boston. And I had several aunts and uncles that lived here. My dad actually is a Winchester native. And my mom is a Wellesley College and Harvard uh, master's degree. So, there's, so you had a Boston connection. I had some Boston roots. My, okay. I have an aunt, uh, two uncles that uh, still live here. Okay. And we vacationed at Squam Lake in New Hampshire. So Boston sort of felt like, let's give it a shot. The romance only lasted another three months once I got to Boston, so it's a good thing I chose uh-huh. a great city. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So you came to, so Cambridge is, is in the Boston area, and you came and worked at Bell Associates. What, what was Bell Associates, and, and what were you doing Bell there? Associates was, was and I, I have not looked them up recently, but was a small management consulting firm. They did projects like surveys and polls of T-ridership, Back then, Harvard Community Health Plan, we surveyed uh, ac- patient access. It was a very small contract. I had a big dig contract, affirmative action, management and planning. So it had a whole variety of services it rendered. And I was out looking for a job, and they said, we're looking somebody to sort of help us with computers. Okay. Um, at that time, uh, if you knew databases or spreadsheets, you were kind of you know, special. Uh, nowadays, you can't get out of uh, junior high without right. that skill, or maybe even elementary school. Interestingly, my worst grade in college was computer science, okay. but I got hired because I actually knew something about databases and uh, <laughs> spreadsheets. So I had the opportunity to be the assistant to the president. And what that meant was anything that needed to be done in a firm that had 12 professionals, a few support staff, and then a ton of data collectors and so forth. So it was a really small firm. It was a great experience because you had to make payroll. So I got to be involved in marketing our services, writing proposals, analyzing research we had done. So I, because it was a small place, I got to do a lot of things. And most importantly for my career, I got to manage people at oh, age okay. 22, 23, 24. Not that I should have been, but <laughs> right. it was like, well, we're doing a survey and we have to do data collection at all at eight different T stops, and we need, you know, fifty data collectors. Who's going to do that? John, could you figure that out? And uh, wow, so right so, away, you were- so very early in my career. At the time, I had no idea that this was a good thing 
to do. I just thought I was just, you know, do my job and isn't that nice? I look back on it and I go, hmm, that was kind of fortunate. Yeah. Um, so I, I now encourage people to, the sooner you can get some of that people management experience, the better, because it's the hardest part of uh, leading and managing. So it's also the best part, but yeah, uh, as you can imagine. Yeah. So you were at Bell for about three years, and then you went to the University of Pennsylvania, where you earned a master's degree in government administration. What attracted you to government administration? So you, you had done poli-sci, you had some experience in business, you said you had an interest in business and politics. What was the draw to, to this program in government administration? So graduate school for me was a lot of sort of luck and circumstance. I was down visiting my parents in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my, both my parents had, my dad's a minister, so he went to seminary, which is a master's degree in religion. And my mother had multiple, uh, degree, multiple masters and PhD. And so they're sort of, hey, you know, are you thinking about grad school? And I said, yeah, you know, in a couple of years. And my mom told me, my campaign manager, she had been a city councilor after I'd left for college, she ran for office. She became a city councilor at large. And the guy who ran her campaign went to this school called the Fell Center of Government. And my mom said, you know, it's really a fascinating place because you take a few government courses, but then you take your business courses at Wharton, your law courses at the law school, public policy at the public policy school. So it was a place you got to dabble in a lot of different areas. And then you had electives. And she said, and it's done in a year and a half. So you, have you ever considered it? I said, gee, mom, I hadn't really given much thought. I was thinking of applying to business school. But this seemed like a nice balance of public, because I knew I wanted to do some good, but also do well uh, from a personal financial perspective. And so I thought, hmm. So she said, you want to meet the director? I happen to know him. And so a few days later, I go have lunch with the director of the program. And he said, would you like to come to Fells next year? And I said, well, I haven't taken my GREs or whatever test I was supposed to take. And I hadn't, I, you know, I kind of have a job. And, and he said, you really ought to give it a shot. And I thought, how am I going to turn down a Ivy League school right. when I haven't even given much thought to which business school or anything? And I thought that'll open a lot of doors for me. And Jumped in and started the next school year back. And my parents live five, I grew up five blocks from Penn, so it was like coming home. So there was a, two parts, coming home, but also an opportunity that sort of presented itself. And the director said one of the main reasons, we want, they were after people with work experience. Okay. And I happened to have three years of work experience. Um, so. so it's sort of a long, twisted story, but it, it just shows you sometimes you show up in the right place at the right time and you get lucky. Yeah, so. yeah. so at what point, coming out of Penn, you had what sounds like your first job in, in healthcare, which was back to Boston yeah. City Hospital. How did you decide, I, I, I'm gonna make the jump to healthcare? When did, you, when, when did you decide that might be a thing I would like to do? So right before I went to graduate school, I had a lunch with a guy named John Couples. John Couples, still works in the Boston area. At the time, he was a vice president at Brigham and Women's Hospital. He was a friend of my father's. He also went to seminary. So it's sort of interesting, a trained uh, uh, religious master's degree minister uh, was an executive at a pretty fine hospital yeah. at the time. 
And he said, hey, you know what? You gotta, don't go to graduate school. Come work in healthcare because it's going to, you can do good and do well. Mm-hmm. There's going to be a lot of change in the next 25 years or so. And if you're anything like if you got a few genes from your father and you can manage people, there's a great opportunity from you because great opportunity for you because healthcare is missing this and it's and it's going to be huge. I mean, that's an amazing diagnosis. Yeah. In 1988, 89, and of course, healthcare has grown and grown and grown. And I I didn't take his advice about skipping graduate school, uh, but when I came back, I thought I do want to. And we were talking before we got online here. In graduate school, one of the things the director had us do was write down on one page, succinct, you know, what did you want to do when you grew up? Not that some of us had already grown a little, and some were actually 40 and 50 years old, so it was sort of insulting probably to the 50-year-olds, but he had us write down what it is, what kind of work, not what job you wanted, but what, you know, how did you want to do personally and professionally? Did, how much money did you want to make? Did you want to be in government and private sector? You know, what is it that motivated you? And doing that exercise made me realize I still, there was sort of a do-good part of me that I want to do something that helps people, but at the same time, do well financially. And I thought, boy, where could I do that? And healthcare was the answer. Now, there were a couple other places I looked just so you, when I got out of grad school, I also looked at transportation, the mass port and Philadelphia market, but Healthcare was really where I spent some time because I, t- I, had only, I only took one course in healthcare in graduate school. But it seemed like a place that I could contribute and what's better than helping people with their healthcare. So how did you come to, to land on the job at Boston City Hospital? Just, it was a job. Okay. <laughs> you wanted to come back to Boston, yeah. you had decided? I decided, again, uh, my personal life shaped my professional life. I had just before... A few months before I decided to go to graduate school, I started dating a woman, a fantastic woman who's now my wife. And going to grad school, I come back and forth. Actually found school to be relatively easy. You only have to do it 17 weeks in a row. Right. And when you've worked at a consulting firm where 80 hours is sort of a normal work week, grad school, frankly, no offense to you professors, <laughs> seemed, seemed actually pretty easy. Yeah. So from a time perspective, I decided I wanted. The other part is I think I did not feel like living in my, at the time, in my mother's shadow or being the son of the well-known politi- a well-known politician in Philadelphia. Everybody in grad school said, why don't you just stay here? God knows you can get a job anywhere. And I, th- I, th- I, d- I didn't know it at the time, but I think there was part of me that said, I sort of want to be out on my own and give it a shot. And I loved Boston, sort of what's not to love. So that's what got me back to Boston. I looked for jobs. I got one. I knew at the time I took, why why was it so short at Boston City Hospital? Because you were only there for about six months. Yeah. And I, I took the job because it was a bird in the hand, but I had been interviewing at several other uh, hospitals and uh, physician groups in the Boston area. And I was very close to this job at the Brigham that I eventually, they eventually called me. They said, hey, we have to wait for our budget cycle. And I was like, well, I'm not going to wait around for that because that cycle was sort of in August. Mm -hmm. Um, And then they called me back and said, hey, the position we were talking to, and I was like, here I come. Because that was the job I wanted. But, you know, in February, after you get out of grad school and you got debt to pay. You have to have a job. You got to have a job. So, and I always thought it was better. 
you know, in general in a career, better to have a job you're more attractive. Mm-hmm. Um, so what was it like to jump into healthcare? So you had you had, had no real background in healthcare. Right. You took you said you took one healthcare class. So what was it like to suddenly be in a large hospital in a in a in a, in a large city? What was that transition like for you? You know, it was a lot of learning, but there are also a whole lot of other people learning their way. The good thing is there were so many sort of management problems in each of the couple positions that I started with. So when I was at Boston City Hospital, the first thing was, hey, uh, there's all these grants that we, we don't seem to be getting paid for. And a little investigating and following the money and having an, having a skill of process improvement, not TQM or, you know, you pick the, but the basics of how do you diagnose a problem and how do you talk to people about what's going on and follow the, follow the dollar and the people. There was $750,000 of research funding that hadn't been billed to the state of Massachusetts, to mm-hmm. the city. Mm-hmm. And you send them a bill and they send you the cash. Mm-hmm. And so... That's not a complicated problem, okay. um, but it took somebody to go dig in and look for, you know, look at why aren't we getting paid for some of the services? And lo and behold, after a little work and how did this happen and so forth. The good news, I think, in both that job and the trauma job at at, at the Brigham, there had been nobody in that position before, and they wanted to develop a level one trauma center at the Brigham. They didn't have one, so there was just sort of green field to some degree to go figure out how to do that. And nobody else was going to spend the time doing it. So I read the manual. I went around and interviewed other level one trauma centers. And said, okay, this is what we need to do. Okay. And then worked with people. And to me, although I have a, I'm sure my wife and kids would say it, but I have a plenty large ego. I think in work, I was humble enough and because I didn't know that much, I just go ask people, so how does this work and how does that work? And I think doing that, then you learn how things work, sort of like a mechanic. You know, you sort of, hmm, I wonder how this works. How does the money work? Who are the people? Who are the nurses, the doctors? The other great piece of my first Brigham job is my office was in this little 80-foot closet on the seventh floor right next to the burn trauma unit the ICU on that floor and the inpatient floor, sort of a weird spot to have an administrative position. But in hindsight, it was just like being a sponge because you watched the craziness of healthcare, trauma patients coming in, ICU, floor, emergency department, EMS, you know, emergency medical services, med flight. There are all these pieces to the healthcare system that because I sort of fell into this position, I got to see them across the institution as opposed to being in one particular area. At the time, I had no idea how fortunate I was. Another thing, there was no billing system, you know, physician uh, billing system for the trauma center. They had billed out like $70,000 the first year. Well, and even back in 1992, uh, $70,000 was not enough. Right, right. <laughs> so yeah. you had to... Go figure out how to for a try, yeah. how do we get this billing fixed up? So people thought, wow, he figured out how to get the bill. It wasn't really that hard. It encounter form and right. uh, how do we use the computer system and how is it done in other places? So I think I was fortunate to get into places that there was there were problems to be solved and 
I was humble enough to go around and ask, you know, how might we do this? And then the last part is each, especially the, the one at the Brigham is putting together a game plan for how you want to, you'll hear this story over and putting together that game plan about how we're going to become a level one trauma center mm-hmm. and then following up, following up, following up is a very important uh, leadership management skill that there are many, many, many people that cannot put a plan together and execute it. The two together, not separately. There's right. plenty that can do both. Right. Do either. One or the other. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it is interesting how many people cannot do that. So you... Not cannot. I'm oh, sorry. Don't. Okay. There's a difference. They can, uh-huh. but whether they do it or not on a regular basis, it's uh, interesting. And uh, one of your questions at the end is, you know, what book would I recommend? Yeah. Right? Yeah. The One Minute Manager. The One Minute? Okay. Why? Because it reminds, it reminds leaders and managers to consistently congratulate people when they do a good job. They call it reprimand, but, but give feedback when it's not going so well. And to sort of keep following up is one of the themes, one, one of the few themes. And it's amazing how much that can, how far that can get you of just managing the people and the process on a, like every day, every week, consistent basis. And most people, you read the book, you listen to the thing, it seems like the silliest right. thing you've ever read. And the book's, you know, this thin. It's and like fun. 60 pages, yeah. You it's know, anybody. They, and most people go, mm. I said, tell you what, take every senior executive and say, do you do that every day? And they, they'll sit there and go, eh, no. Would you be better if you did that every day? The answer would be yes. Okay. They'll all say, I wished I had given people better feedback on the people side of life. So, Where, did you, where do you think you picked up those skills? As you, and it sounds like you're saying you were already starting to kind of do that right at the beginning of your career at, at the Brigham. Mm-hmm. Where did you think you learned that? Was it in the consulting? Was it in... Was it... Just yeah, something you like I, from I'm home? sort of a, you know, this is a common question, you know, where'd you get your leadership management skills? Mm-hmm. Where were they taught? Were they taught, is it genes or <laughs> right, right, teaching? Right. I'm sort of a 50-50 guy in that I, I do think there's something about how you're, who your family is, how you're brought up, uh, the positions you play in sports or in music or whatever you're hobbies are, I think do shape you as a person and then trying to get into healthcare management or business management that there is a part that just comes from how you were developed. But I would say along the way, I had people, none of whom were perfect, but many of whom I learned from some of what they did not so well and some that they did well. And that, you know, that first job working for a small consulting firm that, you know, you had to manage lots of people that didn't necessarily report to you, that you had to care about the people that worked there, that you had to get achieve financial results, that you had to have a plan. And if you didn't have a plan, the chance of being successful uh, with your client, whether it's consulting or in healthcare, were things that you sort of picked up along the way. And I don't remember this like aha moment. It's sort of like it's the, the daily, weekly presence of doing and doing and doing, and you sort of pick it up along the way. I do think graduate school, the the way the the courses we took, like business management, and you do case studies. You know why was LL Bean successful or not? 
we studied the case where they tried to open up a retail shop in Japan and how well that didn't go. And, you know, what's core competency? And so in graduate school did sharpen the mind in terms of how did other places become successful. So I think each one of those added, you know, a little piece to my development, but there wasn't one, there wasn't one, boy, there was the... There was the mentor. There was the experience that sort of turned the corner for me. Mm-hmm. And I had, you know, if you think, I look back and like in high school, I was involved in student government. I played catcher on the baseball team. If you're not managing and leading and you're a catcher, your team, you know, you have to call the plays. You're calling the pitches. You have to manage a pitcher that doesn't want to be managed. Um, so if you, th- you know, compared to, you know, other positions, or other places in school, you know, I started doing it at a young age and liked it. There are other people that, you know, managing people is tough on your on your mind and your soul. And so if you don't like that, don't do it. Right, right. <laughs> Just, we need people that, not everybody can manage people. We need people that are going to do, do the work and like the analysis or great engineers, doctors, nurses. God bless, we need, we need all those different uh, right. talents. But not everybody's cut out to be a, a manager. Yeah, not yeah. everybody's, not everybody, a lot of people may want to mm-hmm. um, because it looks glamorous when you get to be the CEO or something. Mm-hmm. But, you know, managing process and people is hard, hard work. And, um, and you have to like, you have to like or love the, the people interaction part of it if you don't. I always tell people that come in talking to me about, well, I want to get into, I want to be a COO, I want to run a hospital, I want to do this. I said, do you like answering telephones? And they go, they look at you like you're crazy. I said, well, do you like managing people? And they may or may not have done that. I said, you ought to try that first, because if you don't like that you have to answer a telephone effectively, you're not cut out to be in operation, because you have to actually care that the phone gets answered or the email in modern, you know, right. you have to actually care. That's how patients get scheduled. And if you don't care about that, you know, it's beneath you or you don't like managing people and giving them feedback, then I would advise, you know, don't do that. My father, when I was thinking about careers, I thought I wanted to be a sports agent. You know, I was a sports guy, kid growing up. Like, yeah, that's what I want to do. I want to negotiate those big fancy contracts. He said, you know, you ought to go downtown and talk to one of my friends who's a lawyer just because you, know, you probably need to get a law degree to do that. And I said, okay. So I wandered down to this lawyer, talked to him about what he was, what he did and the training he got. I said, that's not for me. Done. <laughs> it wasn't quite that quick, but yeah. it was like, boy, law school, writing those briefs, contracts. Ooh, that's not, not as, my, not that's not what I'm, yeah. I'm not going to actually enjoy that. Yeah. And to this day, I'd go, Thank God we have good lawyers, but you know, I wasn't going to be your guy to make sure the 50-page contract was perfect. I have to read a lot of contracts now, but <laughs> yeah, um, but you have a lawyer to help you. I got a lawyer that's going to worry about all the issues. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you came to Brigham and Women's, and you you were in your first job was as the administrator for the trauma, burn, and critical care division. Briefly, you spent 15 years or so at, at Brigham. Can you briefly describe Brigham as, a, as an organization? How large is it? Beds? Yeah. Uh, give us a sense of how big that, that organization is. 
So the Brigham and Women's Hospital is an enormous uh, healthcare hospital physician group uh, organization. They're probably in today's world about a two billion dollar a year operation. They have you know seven hundred, seven to eight hundred beds today. Back then it might have been six hundred and fifty, but it's in in the world of healthcare a large Harvard Teaching Hospital you know, hordes of top residency programs. So you had trainees, you had research, and then patient care. Patient care being the biggest component. Probably at that time, I think there are about 12,000 employees. My guess is they're approaching 18,000 employees at the moment. So a large, complex physician unionized nursing. You, know, you just read about right, the newspaper. Right. We had, you know, Harvard professors, uh, and faculty, um, so plenty of egos to go around. But a, but an interesting place because it was in the Brigham and Women's Hospital as an organization was act, was actually a young organization. It had its founding members had been around since you know eighteen whatever or seventeen whatever. But in nineteen eighty, there was a merger of three hospitals: the Boston Line Inn, the Women's Hospital, and the Peter Van Brigham Hospital. So in nineteen eighty, they built the first inpatient tower. So if you think about that, I got there in 1992. It was 12 years old, which in the life of an organization is actually relatively young, or life of a human it's relatively mm -hmm. young. But for an organization, and you know, DRGs came to be in the 80s, there was a lot of, a lot of change. A lot of change. So it was this merged organization that was now, actually in 1980, the name of the company was the Affiliated Hospitals, a moving <laughs> I'm glad they moved to Brigham and Women's. So it was an exciting place to be. So it had a, a sense. And then there's a part, a physical part of the Brigham that's really fascinating. It's called the Pike. It's this long hallway that connects, I forget how many, but somewhere between 30 and 50 buildings. So you, the Pike is this main traffic, walking traffic and so along that pike, you bump into doctors and nurses and management people. And it's very different. It's, a, it's one of the few times I referenced the physical part of an organization because it's different having the pike than an elevator. Okay. Um, there were elevators there, don't get me wrong. But right. There was a lot of activity. Cafeteria was connected to the pike. So it was an organization trying to prove itself in the Boston uh, healthcare market. And then very shortly into my tenure at the uh, Brigham, two th very significant things happened from my professional development and, our, and the organization's development. 1994 or five, uh, Partners Healthcare was formed. So the Brigham uh, and the Mass General created Partners Healthcare. That was a huge, over the years after that, just the implementation of that was a huge change in the uh, healthcare environment. The second one was that the my job in the trauma division, and then I moved up to a division manager. Uh, then I managed several divisions, all in the Department of Surgery at the Brigham. But in 19, I think it was 1994-ish, uh, there was a new chief of surgery hired, named, a guy by the name of Michael Zinner, um, who's to this day one of my mentors, friends, colleagues, and him coming presented an opportunity, that change presented an opportunity for me to take on more responsibility. Why was that? 
he was looking for new leadership. Um, I had been involved in a project of improving the billing for the whole department, mm-hmm. uh, sort of a financial task. And he was, when he got there, he wanted to understand the finances and the billing improvement project. So I met with him and one thing led to another. And he asked me to work on the transition team for his transition about what should we do as a department, et cetera, et cetera. And, and he, he was planning to replace uh, the woman who was the department you know, director or manager at the time and wanted to know what, what I thought we ought to do and how we ought to be organized. And along with one other person, we, we helped him through that transition, built trust. He just asked, we, I just got to do more and more as time went along. I tried to convince him to make me the department head, administrative director, whatever the title was at the time. But he, he said, I really need somebody with a little more experience because at the time I was uh, 20, you know, seven years old or, you know, something like that. Uh, I had plenty of confidence, of course. (laughs) How large Um, is the Department of Surgery? How many people are we talking about? We're talking about now it's probably 200 surgeons. At the time, it was a, maybe 120 surgeons. I don't know, several hundred employees, so millions a, of dollars. It's a big. This is department. a big organization. It's, it's a yeah, big. The department's big. Understand that's it. And, and the Brigham and Women's Hospital is a big, complicated organization by any measure of big and complicated to this day. Um, it's even bigger and more complicated. Uh, as we speak. So you may, you did eventually progress up to the administrative director yep. for the department. Yeah, he tried a few other people. They didn't work out. Okay. Um, and I was uh, sitting there and was interim and then became the department director, which was great fun. But along the way, I realized professionally that to be even more effective in the Department of Surgery, being able to lead and manage the surgical services, the operating rooms, the beds, the stuff that make, that really make it work for the surgeons because the, you know, there's all the physician practice part, the billing and office management. But the thing that really was the driver in the surgical areas is the operating rooms. And so how could I, how could I be, how could I get involved with that? And from a career perspective, I was then, the vice president position came open, and although it looks really smooth on my uh, resume, there was a year plus national search for that position, of which you know I was the internal one of the internal candidates, and it went seemed to go on forever and ever. I and mean, eventually, when I was considering another internal position at the Brigham, the brand new chief operating officer called me up and said look, uh, we've had a national search and I'd like to take you out to dinner and talk to you about the job. So it took a long, long time uh, for that to come to pass. And a big reason when he looked across the table, I mean, he said he was hired as the new COO, the young guy. He was probably, he's probably only five or six years older than I am. The young COO to bring change to the organization, hire a new management team, you know, get some outside blood into the place, et cetera, et cetera. And his first or second, actually, but he said, my first major hire is the young, you know, 32 year old young insider, not exactly the mandate I had been uh, given. So he said, don't screw up. (laughs) (laughs) I think I, 
I think I succeeded yeah, in uh, yeah. uh, meeting that rather low expectation. <laughs> I'm not screwing up. Yeah, <laughs> right. nice. let, let me back up a second. Um, so as you progress through kind of your pre-vice president period, so you were moving from administrative director to director, what's your relationship, what's, what is the relationship between the director and the physician who, who you, was, you were reporting to? What, what, was the, what were the titles and kind of yeah. what were your relationships? So the relationship, I always took it as a partnership, first name basis, you know, I'm there to make it easier for them to do research and practice medicine. That is why they have a manager of an area uh, or director as okay. a title. And I think some of the titles you, uh, in the, on my resume, administrative director, director, basically the same thing. Okay. God knows why they were different in, in some places. But for ex give you an example. So I was the administrative director for the thoracic, cardiothoracic program. So I worked for the chief of thoracic surgery and the chief of cardiac surgery. So okay. I and reported- And the chiefs to, were physicians. And the chiefs were physicians, yes. Okay. So they were the head of the top heart surgeon, top thoracic surgeon, and learned a lot from them. I think uh, one of them recently passed, but I think they also learned from me. Here's how the, here's somebody that can actually manage some of the people in your divisions, how they wanted it done. But part of the art was to bring them information and ideas and make it their ideas. Okay. And to also know where they wanted to take their, their division clinically or research or otherwise and be part of that team of he and the other physicians about how do we want this to work? Mm -hmm. And, had the pleasure of being, you know, treated very well. I think it also helped for me. I didn't work for most of the time. Did not work for just one f chief. Mm -hmm. You know, when I became the department director, I mean, I reported to the chief of surgery. But mm -hmm. you know, you had to keep the hundred surgeons, you know, reasonably happy because that was part of your job. And you got a lot of, you know, you got some of the dirty work. You had to go get rid of people or reorganize things or stuff that the surgeon wanted to do, but the chief of whatever the division, but you know, that's why they had they sort of hired you. It's sort of like CEOs with COOs, you know, you know, boy, here's some tough operational stuff. You know, <laughs> that's what we're paying you for. Right, right. Um, I get to, I'm going to go make the speech or do the PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> let me, let me know how that goes. Um, so I had a lot of those uh, tasks. Uh -huh. So you had been managing people kind of right from the beginning of yep. your career. But in when did you actually become a supervisor as opposed to kind of organizing? There's one thing to organize and move people around, then, then there's actually being the supervisor and you know having the hiring and firing authority, and then moving into a managerial role where you're managing supervisors. Yep. Where, where, how did you, how did so you I work was, that? I mean, when I was in the consulting firm, I was hiring and firing okay, so data actually collectors. Had, I mean, it's a... In, in hindsight, not when it was happening, when this happened, it was just like, well, this is what, um, you know, mm -hmm. what they want me to, that's what my boss wants me to do, so that's what I'm going to go do. Okay. In hindsight, I go, wow, was that lucky, yeah. uh, fortunate, whatever it might be, yeah. right place, right time. When I got into healthcare, I, I really didn't hire and fire people. Um, I was also not there that long in the, at the, at Boston City Hospital. I, you know, it was like, go fix this problem or that problem. Nobody really, I didn't. I didn't really, nobody really reported to me, but when I got to the, and same with the trauma division, I had like two people that I supervised, a billing person, and uh, there, there was a whole quality program. There's a nurse that did our quality outcomes for trauma. So 
supervised, managed a couple of people there. But then in the next jobs, it was, I had usually had a clinic manager, or a research manager, so I was managing the managers. But you, even in those jobs where you're managing a physician practice, you really had to know the administrative assistants, the medical assistants, and nurses. You, it was a very hand, even though there were supervisors, you had to get in to the, you know, how's the clinic working today? Are the phones being answered? Why is there a long wait time? What's happening with OR schedules? You had to, you had to be into those details, even though you had, you know, supervisors that were reporting to you. And then obviously in the department of surgery job, I was managing the, and a lot of them, some of them really felt like they they worked for you, and others would go, oh, no, no, I'm managing the division of X, and I report to the chief of cardiac surgery or the chief of this. So a lot of the managing had to be, you know, by influence and by encouraging and goal setting and and coming up with the game plans for those divisions and saying, so what's your plan to grow general surgery or what's your plan to enhance research? And getting people to submit those and review those um, was probably the most effective tool, management tool, was getting people to think two, three, four, five years out, what's the capital going to need? What's the business plan? And it's amazing how many people struggled with that yeah. Uh, exercise. Um, even in even at a Brigham and Women's Hospital, there was a Harvard Teaching Hospital, world famous. Inside the walls, getting the pieces to move, I found probably the most effective way was put the data on the table and what's the plan, and then pick at the plan and try to make it better. Um, and then it, each year review how that's going, or each month or quarter, depending on what the. That goes back to what you said at the beginning about you make a plan and then you execute, execute. and follow. If you interviewed uh, Mike Zinner, who's the chief of surgery, he would say, back when John and I started together, we developed this thing called the surgical action plan. I love giving names to the project. I think it adds some fun uh, to the (laughs) thing. And then you get criticized by your colleagues. You know, what's this corny name or this, that, or the other thing? But it it adds some fun to it. But we had the surgical action plan, which was a five-year plan to grow surgery at the Brigham. What's the capital needs? And we put that all together. It took us several months, a lot of analytics, et cetera. Why do you want to grow? What's the financial benefit? Huge capital needed. What's the return on investment to the institution and to the department and to the surgeons? And it really got buy-in from the surgical faculty, the staff that worked for them. And Mike would say, we came up with this plan. And he said most of his career prior to that, there were lots of plans and they sat on shelves. Mm -hmm. He said, this is the one that we actually executed on, and it worked. And he says it sometimes with great surprise. And so that's the kind of planning and executing. Um, I had took great pleasure going to a, you know, we got a, this pro, our, our surgical action plan approved at a board meeting. And three years later, we were asked to come back and see, you know, how you doing? And it was because there was a lot of skepticism. How could you do this? You know, blah, blah, blah. It looks really difficult, 3% growth per year for six years. <clears throat> that hasn't been done before. And we did it. And we went back to sh- we went back and showed the PowerPoints on, here's what we said we were going to do, and here's what we did, and here's what we missed. That was so much fun to go back and go to the room where people are sort of 
looking at you a little skeptically, but said, nah, it's kind of worth a shot. You know, you got a new executive, you got a new chief, relatively new chief of surgery, let's give it a whirl. It wasn't quite that simple. But being able to go back and say, yes, we spent a lot of money, but we also hired a lot of surgeons and grew the surgical program faster and quicker than anybody else would have imagined. And uh, we took great pride in that and learned a lot from Learned a lot about the organization when you were doing the planning because you unearth some of the problems in different areas or why aren't things growing or why aren't the phones being answered or what's wrong with the this process or that. So what would you say you were learning? What skills did you develop during that phase of your career leading up to becoming vice president? What were the most important things you learned and developed? During that period, prior to becoming the vice president, I think I honed my people skills, both working with physicians and nurses and you know clinical staff, but also managing people. I got you know experience made me better because you make mistakes. Uh, so that was one. Two is honing and probably formalizing. I guess that developing a plan is actually kind of important and having some structure to that, whether it's, so I, now my mantra is, you know, if there's not a spreadsheet at the end of your plan, you haven't finished your plan. Uh, and you can see it all the time. People come with beautiful PowerPoints. Here's my plan. So, so how's that going to work for us financially over the next X years? And they go, oh, well, this is just the plan. I said, it's not a plan until you talk about money. Um, so I think I honed my planning skills and my people skills. And the, th- the third part is I got very involved in space planning. Mm. and which was a probably a more valuable resource at the Brigham in, in hindsight than money. And so working on complicated space projects, and it wasn't the space, it was how we were going to work in that space. So people always look at it as the bricks and the mortar and the exam rooms, but it, it really you really learned how to, to peel apart how was that clinic or operating room or procedure going to work and then how do you design the space around that? I learned a lot in those years on space planning that helped me understand people and process because I was involved in the space planning efforts. So in 1998, you were promoted to your first vice president role and you, you said you came in with low expectations of not to screw it up. <laughs> what, what does it, so I served in the military for a long time and we have kind of divides between company grade and field grade officers. And so you come in initially as a company grade and you're learning your kind of a lot of the skills you were just talking about, kind of early management skills. And then you move into field grade and, and I, I'm imagining this is kind of the same kind of, of shift. Now you're more of a strategic player. Is that an accurate description of what a, a vice president would be expected to do and move into? Yeah. I, yes, but also the at, at, the, uh, at the Brigham, the way we were organized, is the vice presidents had responsibility for their areas. So for me, it was surgical and then imaging services. And so there was a department chair like uh, this guy, Mike Zinner, I mentioned. So Mike Zinner didn't report to me. He reported to the president of the hospital. But my job for the surgical services areas was all the, all the functions, the hospital-based functions, and for example, operating rooms, pre-surgical evaluation center, how that whole surgical beds, uh, how that whole surgical process works. So you were responsible. 
you had operating responsibility and directors that had 50, 100, 200 employees working for them. So your job really was how to making sure those places work. What are the metrics? How many cases are we doing? What can we do to improve? But you really were more in the overseeing, planning, multi-year view of this as opposed to you know, how are we doing today? Although mm-hmm. I took, I, every day I'd come into my office and I'd look up, yeah, how many cases are we doing? How busy are we? Mm-hmm. What's going on? Because you sort of needed to have a, your finger on that pulse, but I wasn't cleaning surgical instruments. No. Um, there's a fleet of people cleaning surgical instruments. So, so how did you and, scope and change? I took, Sorry. And I took, because when I was with the Department of Surgery, it was largely about the office practice and professional billing and all the stuff that goes into a physician office practice. But I, one of the things I learned in my early, in that those years was, or philosophies I developed was, there's not a separation of hospital and physician. I'm not naive enough not to think there's some of that politics that goes on, but I figured the more I could espouse that a hospital needs great physicians and physicians need a great hospital. So this night, this sort of historical we and they, I constantly tried to make sure there was no we and they. And luckily had, in surgery's perspective, had some great chiefs that sort of lived and walked that walk too. A chief of orthopedics, chief of surgery, eventually the chief of anesthesia that realized that our futures were tied together. They weren't somehow, if the surgeons did great and the hospital did bad or vice versa, mm-hmm. they're totally connected. And so every we had a every week meeting, me and the chief of surgery and the and the department manager about where are we taking surgery over the next month, year, who are the new recruitments? And it wasn't the hospital this, the doctors this, who we would occasionally have to work some of the how we pay for stuff out, but we developed a how we do this together, not mm-hmm. a we and they, which you see in healthcare all the time and it's it's not healthy even if you're in a hospital that has private practice physicians this notion that you're really separate i think is a uh, something we need to overcome as a provider side of the industry because guess what insurance companies and everybody else does they pick us apart the more we're together you can't have health care without doctors and hospitals so i took that philosophy into the surgical services and lived it every week. I had great physician leadership that were great partners and was very fortunate to have those to have those people as your partners. Okay. So you move from reporting to the chief of yeah, surgery sure. to now kind of partnering with yep. him and providing the environment that surgery... Yeah, because um, my job was provide those surgeons a terrific operating experience and the chief of surgery is a lot happier <laughs> because... He, when the operating rooms work well, there's a, there's a lot less uh, work for the chief of surgery on that. Then he can focus on how our residents doing, how are we growing the programs, mm-hmm. who's the next recruitment, and and the chief of surgery, chief of orthopedics, anesthesia. I had I was really fortunate to have people that sort of bought into the we component. So from 2003 to 2006, you continued to add more responsibilities to your portfolio. You kept, you kept surgery and you yep. added imaging and then cancer services, pathology and lab services and, and network development. Um, 
And by 2006, you were responsible for managing and mentoring 15 directors who were responsible for over 2,100 FTEs and budgets in excess of 300 million. How did your leadership style have to evolve as you took on those additional responsibilities? Hiring fantastic leaders. You know, the, the other directors had to be, had to be fantastic because I'd spend less and less daily time directly supervising those areas. Um, so you had to get, you had to sort of get good at hiring people you thought, hold them accountable, but let them do their thing. You know, whether it was the nursing director or the administrative director of surgery or the network development person, the finance uh, staff, that's what you had to get. And that's also where having your game plan, mm -hmm. if people know what that game plan is, it makes it a lot easier if everybody knows, hey, next three years in, in surgery, for example, we have a 3% per year growth target. Guess what, team? You know, whatever you're doing, let's make sure we're doing things that make sure we hit those numbers from a numbers perspective. But what, are we, what, but what that means is not just numbers. It means hiring good nurses, getting, if we get a new doctor on, how do we get them their practice ramped up? How do we get the marketing resources? How do we track quality, right? There's a whole bunch of steps that go with the making that happen. Mm -hmm. It's not just, you know, add water, stir, stir. And so, and so the other part of it was, but some of the, like, for, let me give you an example. The network development part was part of helping to grow surgery. A cancer center at South Shore Hospital or Patriot's Place or a better relationship with Dana-Farber. What that meant, that is part of making your surgical services, because guess what? Surgery is a big part of cancer. South Shore Hospital, the first three or four things were cardiology and surgery, where we planted surgeons down at that institution and came up with smaller contractual relationships as compared to the bigger ones that came over time. Mm -hmm. So. It wasn't a complete disconnect like surgery's here, radiology's here. Right. Um, when I added pathology, I mean, some of these were just you were the person standing when they reorg when somebody, another vice president left. And I'm like, well, he seems to be doing good with these, but let's add a few more. And, you know, some of them, like when I added pathology late in my career at the Brigham, it was, you know, some vice president left and they the president or chief operating officer, depending who was there, said, you know, you're doing a good job with these other things. Take that one. Mm -hmm. And I got known for getting things done. And you get known for getting things done and people just keep giving you more. That happens That happens in most organizations, yeah. no matter what their health care or not. Uh, you look around and said, here's your reward for being great or more. good at what you, more. <laughs> As you as you moved up into those higher levels of responsibility and, and larger scope, you describe, you know, when you were initially working in the Department of Surgery, you, you really knew all the uh, admin staff and you were able to go down and really focus on all of the, the yep. actual operations. At some point, you had, to, you had yeah. too many of those too to do that on a day-to-day -day basis. So how did your management style change to, to deal with that? A lot more on metrics, but I think... One of the things about having been in the day-to-day -day operations and managing people at a, at a different level of the organization is you're, you had a lot of experience or instincts that when you looked at the weekly, monthly, daily management reports on volume, quality, length of stay, you, you know, the norm, 
That experience made it a lot easier to handle more and more areas because, so that those sets of experiences, if I had not run several clinics or re-engineered how we did surgical services early in my career and learned how the nurses worked and so forth and so on, it would have been harder to sort of trust the bits and pieces of information. But two other things, hiring good people. I spent hours and hours. I would make the extra time to walk to a clinic or have a meeting. I would always try to have my meetings at somebody else's office, uh, whether it was a chief of service or a manager. Like I would go to my OR nurse manager and meet her in her office or the director of this, I meet in their office. There came a time when people said, well, we really wanted to come to your office, you know, because mm -hmm. it feels special. To go. I'm like, that ain't happening. <laughs> but I also spent a lot of time building a network, going out and having a cup of coffee with a young person uh, or somebody looking for career change and just keeping that network of people, some of whom have never worked for me or worked at the organization, either Mass Ioneer or Brigham. But that continuing to be interested in talking to people no matter where they are about their career and so forth meant when you went to go look for people, you go, I remember so-and-so. Or you ask one of your managers, so who do you think might be good and fit here? And then when you have that opening, you go, hey, there's at least somebody I can consider. So the development of your network and and taking great advice when I took this vice president job from another executive said, make sure you have time to think. So literally take time in your schedule, thinking time, because you'll get so busy with all the stuff. If you're not thinking about what's best for the organization, what's best for your areas, if you don't carve out time and said, do not make it from four to six on Friday afternoon when you're the most tired. Not that you're tired, but just, and she, she was significantly older. She's, you know, said, as you develop, Friday afternoons from 4 to 6 is not the only time to do your good thinking. Or, you know, Sunday at you know 7 a.m. This right. is like right. carve out some time. So I think that that lesson was a good one to carve out. Oh, and the second one was make sure you're not so busy or perceived to be so busy you can't take the next cool project. Because if you're perceived to be too busy or you per want people to perceive you as too busy, then... The next merger, the next new project that's really exciting, they think of somebody else because you're too busy. So I've made an effort to make sure, even though I might have been really busy, make sure you have time when the next school project comes along. And that, that was true as a when I had the trauma job. That was true when I had the division director job. The things that got me noticed were the special projects. I mean, also getting your day job. If you don't get your day job done, you know, it's going to be a problem. But having a little extra time to serve on the emergency department process improvement committee. And you go, hmm. And because I was doing the trauma center, I was on that committee. Okay. Or the critical care committee. How do we take better care of patients or improve the processes there? You know, those aren't, that's not in my job description. Mm -hmm. But getting on those committees, more people get to see you do your work, you get noticed. You get asked to do the next thing and the next thing. You just have to be careful not to always say yes because you end up maybe overstretched and then you don't get your day job done. That, I've seen that happen. Yes, yes, yes. And then you go, oops, the phones aren't being answered right. back in the clinic. Right. So you have to balance that. Somehow. Yeah. 
if the day job's not getting done, <laughs> right? That's job one. But if you can then create time, you know, it helped. It helped me that early in my career, I was in a lot. You know, before marriage, before kids, you have a lot more time, and I used a lot of that time to spend the extra hour or two, or the evening, or the go to the extra event to meet more people. You just took the extra time, and then the last, you know, several years, I have a, a my wife is understands it's hard work and you're gonna not be home all the time uh, but in healthcare I'm not traveling so I'm home every night you know spend plenty of time with my kids but still they're long days and you have to that you gotta say that's part of and you have to have a partner that's gonna if, if you yeah. decide you want a partner mm-hmm. and you want kids which is your decision <laughs> right or a young person's decision then you have to find a good balance or it can be very, very challenging if you don't have that. So you came to Massachusetts Eye in your infirmary in January of 2007 as the president and chief executive officer. Yep. Before we talk about your, your current role, can you tell, tell us a little bit about Mass Ioneer? Yes, Mass Ioneer is a Harvard Teaching Hospital specialty hospital. We only take care of patients who have eye, ear, nose, throat balance problems, sort of from the from the neck up except the brain, although some of our hearing involves the brain. So we have the largest eye research program in the United States, the largest hearing program in the United States. We are home to the Harvard residency program. So we have a three-part mission, patient care, teaching, and research. And our residency program is tops in the country, uh, one of the largest, if not the largest, or tied for the largest. We have the most uh, NIH funding and in the Boston area, we're, you know, we have 70-plus ophthalmologists, 70-plus otolaryngologists. Most other places have a handful or two at best. There's a few private practices that have a few more ophthalmologists, but by far the biggest group of uh, physicians, ophthalmologists and otolaryngologists. We're about $400 million. So even in Boston, we're considered a small hospital or a small teaching hospital. But that's $400 million a year and 2,200 plus employees. So it's small in healthcare land, especially when you're, li- you're next door to your, one of your most important partners, mm-hmm. um, small p, and they have 20,000 employees and are multiple billions. You get perceived as small, but it's still a large organization. Lots yeah. of people, lots of, lots of action. And-, and the other thing I'd point out is what's also different is that 95% of our work is outpatient. So we only have 41 beds, but we have 21 operating rooms. To give you an example, Newton Wellesley Hospital has 14 operating rooms or 15, something like that, and they have 300 beds. The MGH has 50 plus ORs, but 900 beds. So we are sort of the opposite and really focused on the outpatient services as opposed to most of the hospitals that the inpatient service delivery is the largest function for the organization. Mass Ioneer is referred to as a specialty hospital. How is that different than an ordinary academic medical center or community hospital? Different in that we only take people with those diseases, eyes, ears, noses, and throats. A lot of the functions you have at all those other hospitals, you still have payroll, purchasing. You have all the same Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. hospital, you know, hotel functions. 
security. You have all those things. It's it, we just it just means focusing on that group, that patient population, uh, those patient populations, as opposed to taking all comers. Um, we have our own emergency department, so that that's really the difference. Is your focus on that that population? You do both basic research and clinical trials. What's the difference, and what does that mean? Clinical trials are the studies that are done on humans. <laughs> so we say, Mark, uh, we have this new treatment, and you sign a consent form, and we are actually, after having a lot of testing and making sure it's safe in animals and so forth and so on, a clinical trial is really testing, will that device or drug work in a human being? And there are different phases of clinical trials. So clinical trials are really focused on our patients. The cochlear implant back in the early 70s and 80s when it was being developed, somebody had to try the first cochlear implant, and that was uh, here. Um, and they were, you know, enormous big boxes of things. Now they're these little tiny electrodes that go in your, into your head and ear. So you need to get new treatments. Somebody has to give it a whirl the first time. Basic research is people working on the biology and chemistry of a potential all of our work is driven by finding new treatments and cures for hearing and cancer head and neck cancer ophthalmologic diseases so it's studying the chemistry biology of a potential solution for somebody it doesn't involve patients involves tests and animals and laboratory work sort of in your brain you could think if you see all the beakers and laboratories and mad scientists yeah. they're working on the basic research and the clinical trials are really what comes out of that lab hey we found the gene or the possible drug mixture that could help a patient and after we test it in mice or other animals after we test that and make sure it's safe then we try it in human beings how do people come to get their care at Mass Ioneer? And from how far away do people come? They come from all over, literally all over the world. Now, all over the world, our international patients coming from international locations, it varies between 1% and 2% per year. Most of our patients come from the metro Boston area. And then we get a large number of New Hampshire, Maine, Vermont patients. And then probably a handful percentage from national. They come from other states. People call from New York, Connecticut, Philadelphia because of some expert or sometimes one of the clinical trials. Um, people go, hey, they Google. And with technology nowadays, people say, who's the best you know, ophthalmologist or retina doctor? And they come from Detroit, LA, Texas. We have a great story about this young woman with macular degeneration from Texas, tennis player. Heard about the work being done at Mass Ioneer and said, we got to come, and they flew up here to get seen by one of our physicians. So some of the diseases are really rare, so people travel a long way, and some are because people are looking around for the best physician, most trained, most experienced. And uh, when it comes to ophthalmology and ENT, there's, there's so few places that have this depth and breadth of services around the world that this is one of, one of those places. And having been around since 1824, yeah. You develop a name and a reputation, and being part of Harvard Medical School helps. So all those factors are what draw people here. You're an affiliate of Partners Healthcare. What is Partners Healthcare, and what does it mean that you're an affiliate as opposed to a member? A member of Partners Healthcare means you're owned and part of the Partners Healthcare company. 
MassIner is a separate 501c3. We have our own board of directors. We are owned by no other entity, but we have one of our strategies, one of our main strategies when I got here was to how do we partner officially with other places to be their eye and ear service. We have the largest number of eye and ear physicians. We have one of the great services in the world. Why don't we export that to other places? So we have a contract with Brigham and Women's Hospital to provide their ophthalmology services. We actually, although we are right next to MGH, not until 2009 do we have a contract with the MGH to provide ophthalmology and ENT services to the Mass General. And so 2009, we signed that contract. So affiliated, what it really means is we have a contractual relationship with those institutions to provide clinical services and leadership in those uh, two areas. We generally don't use the affiliated word because it has a strain. Not many people. What does that mean? You're affiliated. Mm-hmm. Um, we buy. We also buy services from uh, partners and from the MGH. So, for example, our information systems. We're on the same information information system right now. Epic mm-hmm. um, as all partners. So we, but we buy that through a contractual relationship with them because we're not big enough to put in our own. I mean, we could buy another system, but 55% of our referrals come from partners, healthcare entities. So why would I buy another system when I'm, we have such an integrated relationship? Um, not to mention Epic is a well-known, right. popular uh, system. It brings its own headaches. But, <laughs> right. Um, you mentioned your board. Uh, yep. And you have Mass Ioneer has its own board. What is the role of the Mass Ioneer board? So the role of our board, they provide leadership, oversight, really take their job, their oversight job in terms of finances, quality of care very seriously. They also help us raise money. We've increased our fundraising from $9 million to about $25 million in the last three years. And we've taken the role of the board which you read in governance in one of your classes. I think you're teaching governance. I and the board chair, and I think the other board members view the board, it's an all-volunteer board, so it's not a paid board like a lot of companies. So it's a volunteer position. And so we try to make it easy on our board by providing them information. And their jobs are, number one, to hire the chief executive who works for the board. And I make sure I remember that. I work for them, not the other way around. Number two is oversight of, in particular, the finances and the quality of care. doesn't mean they do it. It just means make sure management Mm -hmm. is on their game when it comes to the financial and quality of patient care. And then third, and probably most importantly, is the review and oversight of our strategic plan. What are we doing? Where are we going? And does the board and management, and when I say management, I mean our our management structures. We have vice presidents of different areas, finance and operations, et cetera. But it also means our chief of ophthalmology, physician chief of ophthalmology, physician chief of otolaryngology, chief of radiology, and chief of anesthesia. It is our physician and management team together. It's not a separate. We have every Wednesday we have a meeting. So we run this. It's not doctors over here, mm-hmm. everybody else over here. It's uh, one company. So our board holds us accountable for that. So strategy, CEO, and oversight. And they and it's uh, terrific. I'd also say having a, we have a 
fantastic board chair that joined in 2010 who is really committed to our mission and research. He has a blind son. He also happens to be a good guy and the owner of the Boston Celtics. So we have somebody that can really open doors for us when it comes to getting things done in Boston or uh, raising money. It's been a real real big pickup. And then several other board members from very prestigious financial firms, law firms. Some people are retired. But it's it's a constant effort to keep your board with people that you would be proud of because it's a volunteer. Right. Actually, it's a volunteer and they donate money okay. uh, to the institution. So okay. here's the job opportunity for you. Uh, would you please come give your time free? Um, would you also donate some money and would you also oversee a large uh, organization? How's that sound to you? <laughs> and so we management here really works hard at making sure that those jo- that coming to do that is attractive from a time management perspective. We don't have we have five board meetings a year. We have a few committees, and we send them emails, keep them as informed as they would want to be. How does somebody come to be on the board? Two ways. It's probably 20 ways, but two main ways. Okay. One is we actually have a list, which I won't share with you. We have a list of people who we are, who we would be interested in having on our board. Well-known figures, people with financial resources, men, women. Try to. It's hard to keep the diversity of our board. It's probably something we haven't done as good a job. We have good, good but not great male, female, but people of color, more diverse backgrounds. It's very hard work, but we're constantly looking and interviewing. So we have a list of people that we go out and meet with and say, "Hey, would you know? Would you be interested in this? Would you be interested in this great job?" And then, but the other way is that our board members or other people who were patients become interested through either that personal connection or the patient connection. Say, "What can I do to? What can I do to help? I'd love to." And then we look at their profile because. If you're going to give money and time, you have to have money and time. Right. And I have also taken the approach, and for anybody in one of your classes, uh, when you're, if you're hiring somebody for a nonprofit and there's personal fundraising or fundraising to be done, we have taken, it's probably gone a little overboard, I mean, very direct when we're talking to people about it, about here's the financial expectation, here's the time expectation, and saying, look, I tell the same story to every one of the people sitting around this around the table, so that you don't get there and go, "Oh my God, I'm sort of all these people are given a lot of money and I'm not," and they feel uncomfortable, or I can't really give much time and they're all donating their time. I said, when you're talking about the type of people that are on this board, you know they don't want to have a surprise, and we make sure they have no financial or time surprises when we're recruiting them. Um, and, that, and that is not universally uh, true in other nonprofits. It's usually a little more vague. Uh-huh. I, mean, I, I would encourage anybody that's doing it, the more direct you are, the less surprises you get and the less surprises they get uh, later on. And people go, huh, that's a pretty big financial commitment. I, I'm probably not your guy or gal. Or other people go, that's not a problem. What else is there? How much time? And you... It's a it's a hard conversation. That's largely been left to me. It's not okay. like the other board members are like, I don't want to do that. Because it's you know, these are peers or friends or whatever, and I go, not a problem. I'll you know and I tell them just like I was telling you, I, I just don't want you to be surprised. Can you describe your role 
as CEO, what do you do on a day-to-day basis? What's a day in the life of John Fernandez look like? Highly varied. I try to spend most of my time on projects and initiatives that generate that generate revenue uh, for the organization. So fundraising, new projects, things like that, new clinical programs, growing our clinical programs. That's really where I try to spend most of my time, but you do have management issues, you have personnel problems, you have security breaches, there's stuff that comes up. So then another big part is managing our board, but also managing the vice presidents and chiefs of service that report to me. But those people are largely self-motivated. So the most important thing is hiring good folks. Just to quickly add, one of the things you've, you've we talked about earlier is what, what might I wish I had done or, earlier in my career or at, at, as CEO. Number one is public speaking. Whoever's taken that class, take it seriously and practice, 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 practice. There, I wish I had done that earlier in my career. In my, I wish in graduate school I had paid more attention. It's a skill I needed to work on as a CEO, um, which I could have worked on my whole career and I didn't. Number two is in the CEO job, getting your team together sooner than later is easier said than done, especially when I joined as a new outsider CEO, 41 years old. You know, I sort of treaded a little lighter than I probably should. In retrospect, getting the team, whether they're here or not, but getting the team that you feel you got the right right people in the right positions, the sooner the better, even if it's a little painful, is it's just a different world when you get fantastic people working for you, that mo- many of whom are w- well smarter than I am. But they're good, really good at what they do and want to work here. So. When you say a little painful, you mean probably managing someone out that you yeah, don't think is a good fit anymore. Telling somebody it's just not going to be a great fit and I need it. Or restructuring in one of the positions that the person's not quite the right fit. Or, you know, getting, getting the... CFO or COO that works. It's really, at, at, when you get to this level, it's the fit of the person more than it is, are they qualified? The people, you, you get a ton of qualified people. It's, are they going to work well with the other members of the team as well as really be able to take what you're doing and translate it into their part of the organization? It's a, it's much more of a, does that person have the, the drive, the personality, the, and the skills, but there are plenty of people that have left here that are very skilled, good people. Mm-hmm. That they just weren't the type of person we needed for the next five years or the next ten years. And you know that for your people in your class, you get to a point in management where a lot of people take it really personally when they're not the right fit. Mm-hmm. Don't. It just you know what happens. Um, and you move on to the next one. And that, that's easier said than done. It's emotionally difficult if you're that person. But when you get to the senior levels, it's, there's a lot of how you, how you fit with the rest of the team or your skills fit into the organization at this point in time. Can I ask you, what is organizational culture and why is it important? And what aspects of organizational culture are particularly important to you? Culture to me is sort of, Hard to get your handle on it, and you, and you don't know it till you're in it. Even though we talk a lot about it in management land, it's like sort of you know what is it? It's, it's the way people feel and the way work gets done, and sort of the, the, air, 
of the management team or the organization or whatever it might be. And I don't have something that's really that one little nugget. It's more a series of, like people will say the culture has changed here. But I think part of that is the people, part of that is you have a strategy. I think getting back to that culture change is where are we going? And when people sort of get that idea, that's that becomes your culture for a period of time. And then it might have to change a little bit. Like at Mass Ineer, I got here and I would say the culture was sort of the Eeyore culture. We always thought it was going to rain or somebody was going to merge or we were going to go bankrupt or whatever. Now I think it's a culture of growth and we're the biggest and the best and a little more ego. Not a lot, but it's mm-hmm. not, geez, I wonder if something bad's going to happen or MGH is going to take us over or we're going to lose too much money or... And I think that comes with hiring people, having a plan, sharing how we're doing with the plan, sharing our financial results, talking about the strategy of the organization changes the, for us, change the culture to be uh, how do we get after it as opposed to, boy, something's going to be done to us. What would you say is your leadership philosophy? Uh, plan and execute. Plan and execute. Okay. We've, we've talked about that yeah. a couple of times. I mean, it's it's that straightforward. It's, I think it's that. So the other thing I would say is mine is probably also how how can we be kind to each other? I think too many, you know, in healthcare, there's so many hard problems and you get to see people who are suffering. And to me, asking your staff, I know it doesn't happen all the time, but boy, can you, can you just be kind to your colleague? They're, they're here trying to help another patient or do another research project. 99.9% of the people are not here trying to make your life more difficult. So don't treat them that way. And if we treat each other a little better, my guess is it will translate to our patients that you actually care how somebody's doing. And, uh, and it's sort of interesting to add caring to health care. But I think that's something that I, and sometimes that gets perceived as you're, you're too nice. That does not mean you have to be too nice. Yes, you have to make tough decisions and you have to do all that and set a strategy. A big part of strategy is deciding what you're not doing. But you don't have to say, well, we're not doing that. We can say, we are doing this. And you can choose to tell somebody that they're just a horrible person, or you could say, geez, there's a few places you can improve. Same same message, a different level of kindness. So that's sort of been my approach to it. So in closing, what advice would you give to an aspiring early careerist who would like to maybe be the CEO of Mass Ioneer someday? So I'd say hard work which doesn't mean long hours, although it can mean that, but it's like figure out your plan and really focus each day, each week on what are we getting done and, and, and working at your craft hard and well. And that will, and put in the hours if you need to put in the hours. If, if you're not the smartest bulb like me, you know, spend a few extra hours reading and learning and, and have that interest Second is to actually enjoy what you do. If you don't enjoy it, you, you can't do the first part of it. It just becomes drudgery. Find, find another career, find something you like to do. Then I've talked a lot about the plan and execute part of it for a young, for a young person and the public speaking part. You can, you can take your iPhone now and practice your public speaking. You, you need no help. Go find a speech that somebody gave, Gettysburg Address. Do it 20 times and then do it 20 times. You want to get humbled? 
look at your iPhone after you speak and you'll be, oh my God, like you're going to have to edit this tape because my diction's not so good or <laughs> this or that. But that kind of, those are the things to me when I talk to people. Get you, and get your own personal plan. I gave you the handout. What you want to be as a person. I want to be married. How much money do I want to make? Where do I want to live? Sort that out first. The career comes second. Because if you don't want to live in another place and you work for a company that their main offices are somewhere else, guess how well that's going to work. If you want to make a lot of money and you go try to be a school teacher, that's going to be hard to do. I'm exaggerating to make the point. If you want to have 15 kids that all need to go to college, you might want to pick a career that generates the income to do that, and so on and so on. I think figuring out what you really want as a person, which when you're just getting out of, <laughs> when you're 22, the good thing is take that list after you wrote it down. You can go back in a race and say, no, I didn't want 15. I had two kids. I'm done. You can change your plan. Yes, I only want to live in Boston. Well, maybe I'll live in Hartford. And so times change and you may change, but knowing in your head what matters to you as a person, then the career things will fall in, fall in your uh, lap. Um, if, you, if you work hard and you have a few brain cells, which if they're going to UNH and they're in your class, they've at least passed that test. So that'd be my advice. Thank you. And thank you for all the support you give to our program at UNH as yeah. well by providing internships and, and career opportunities for our students. They keep doing good work. We keep hiring them. <laughs> thank you so much for your time today. Yep. Thank you. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again in about two weeks.